This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Well, uh, for folks that are just joining us, welcome. Uh, you have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We gather here every Friday for TJF DCT, where we cover a range of topics related to decentralizing clinical research, making trials more accessible. We'll cover topics ranging from the technical around interoperability to the human factors around inclusion, access, representation, to policy considerations and global implementation. Our topics come from you, the friends in the audience, just like today's topic came from one of our audience members. So I'll give a shout out to Vidi Goel in the audience. It's good to see you here, Vidi, and thank you for suggesting today's topic. If you have a topic that you'd love to see us cover in the weeks or months ahead, drop a line to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali. We'll get you added to the schedule. It's your ideas, your voices that make these gatherings so much fun and so interesting. A quick program note coming soon. Uh, we are repackaging our Clubhouse sessions from this year as podcasts, and we'll be pushing those out to your favorite podcast platform. So if you happen to be listening to this as a recording on podcast, welcome to you as well. And keep in mind, you can always join the live gatherings on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern time on the Clubhouse app. If you're new to us here on Clubhouse, you can always give a tap to the Decentralized Trials name on the upper left. You can follow the club over there. It'll get you notifications about upcoming sessions. You'll be able to, from that page, scroll through our past replays over the past year plus of gatherings, replay those content. But you can also scroll and see what's coming up in the weeks ahead. One final note. Amir Kalali is running late and may not be with us today, but he would always want me to add, make sure you check out the profiles of folks who are speaking and folks who are sharing time with you here in this room. Give a tap to their profiles, maybe give a follow on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. The folks in this room share your interest in today's topic. Could be interesting connections for you today, tomorrow, next year. Who knows? Well, I'm looking forward to today's topic, but I feel like my throat is still a little light from my post-scope round of COVID this week. Jane, how are you faring with your post-scope round of COVID this week? I'm still in full Stevie Nicks, um, but <clears throat> I think I can see the light and it's not a train. So that was a gift I didn't expect, especially at this stage of the pandemic. 
I know. I thought we were squeezing by and, and, you know, I, I joked, my wife told me don't come back with water bottles or coffee mugs from scope. So I brought coat back instead. And Brad, I know you were, you were feeling you were missing out on scope. You'd posted some pretty awesome graphics, but see what you missed out on in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, in that case, uh, I don't feel quite so bad. And I still got to check it out virtually and uh, get to see some of the panels. So I got the best of both worlds, I think. It was it was nice to see so many folks energized to regroup. It, there was certainly uh, some interesting panels that were going on around the uh, around the couple of days there. Scope runs a lot of things in parallel, so it's kind of hard, even if you're there, to keep track of of all the different sessions and kind of make sense of their of their program. But it was uh, it seemed like a pretty successful gathering and hopefully a good sign for for people coming together in different places over the course of this year, hopefully, you know, without spreading viruses. But we'll, we'll see how that all goes. So today, uh, and again, thanks to uh, Vidi and our audience for setting up today's topic, we're going to talk about something a little bit interesting. Maybe it's a little provocative as we're thinking about these different tools and methods that are coming out of this decentralized toolkit, opportunities like video or um, remote nursing, how can this start to create some new opportunities for us to engage with treating physicians in the community? Is there a future that we've aspired to for clinical research as a care option about including treating physicians in research in ways that maybe we can start to see and realize today that maybe um, felt a bit muddled or like a pipe dream in years past? Is there an opportunity in front of us to be able to capitalize on that? And so, uh, Jane, I think you had a phrase for this, right, uh, from your old days? Not so old days. In fact, one of the reasons I joined CureBase was because we were on a mission to bring your own physician, BYOP, and actually prove that model in a couple of settings. And so far, it's been harder to replicate across all therapeutic areas, but I'm really hopeful and I'm curious to hear from our experts in the room and on the panel how we can make this a reality because I think that's a big key to unlock. How might people bring their own physicians into clinical trials? Well, let's let's probe on some of this. We've got two friends joining us today. Let's say hello to Scott. Scott Stout, welcome. Come on off mute, Scott. Introduce yourself for the audience and why you're thinking about this topic. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Scott Stout. I'm the CEO of MedVector. And, you know, something occurred to me um, about five years ago, but when telemedicine was, you know, still this secret thing that nobody knew about. But it occurred to me that, that there, was a, there was a problem that could be fixed by including the treating physicians into clinical trials. And it didn't, coming as an outsider, I didn't see what was stopping it. So the further I dug into it, the, the more I found the pathways to make it happen. And now here we are at a place where we found the path. Now it's just a matter of, you know, how do we get the adoption and the traction of the industry? Thanks so much, Scott. So, um, and just in full disclosure for folks in the audience, I do some work with Scott and the folks over at MedVector. So I, I do have a relationship 
to uh, to Scott's company in full disclosure. Um, here's a guy that I don't have a financial or business relationship with, but a, certainly a follower relationship on social media. Brad Hightower, welcome. If somebody doesn't know you, uh, or actually I'm kind of curious, how does Brad Hightower introduce himself and what's your connection to this week's topic? Yeah, it, it depends on the day of the week that you catch me probably, but uh, you know, I'm a I'm a guy who's worked at site level, you know, my whole career, almost 15 years now. And uh, I broke off about five years ago uh, to sort of start my own site network just because I, I saw here where I live a real lack of uh, community engagement outside of large academic medical centers. Uh, so a, a lot of siloing uh, of even the small uh, research options that were available, probably to no one's surprise. Um, and, you know, it's been... Um, frustrating to see uh, how challenging it can be to uh, engage physicians who maybe, you know, aren't sites or aren't uh, PIs. I know this is something, Craig, you, you've talked about that, you know, you know, my idea was to go out and create new sites, but you can't, not everyone needs to be a site. Uh, we need to have options for patients to participate who aren't at a site. It's just simply impractical to have every doctor be a PI. Um, and you know, seeking physician referrals is a, and let's just say it's an uphill battle, uh, to say the very least. It requires um, a lot of touch points and a lot of uh, logistics from the site who's managing that. Um, you know, we like to think that there's nothing but altruism throughout this industry. And while that's, you know, overwhelmingly the case, uh, a lot of physicians simply don't want to send their patients out the door. So, uh, for me, somebody who's operating a you know relatively small network um, in a you know relatively contained geographic area, how can I best work with treating physicians uh, to get them you know involved in a clinical trial? And that's uh, I mean that's really my my interest here. We need investigators, right? There, clinical research doesn't happen without investigators. That's a cornerstone. It's it's a requirement. And quite honestly, people who participate in research overwhelmingly are pleased with their interaction with investigators. The problem is that, you know, people they're, they have doctors in their lives and, you know, their, their doctors are their tr most trusted source of information about treatment options, including clinical research. And we can't expect every doctor to be an investigator in every clinical trial in order to create a, a universe where we can all have equitable opportunity for our doctors to talk to us about trials. I remember uh, Alicia Staley once brought this up under the, under, the, under, the, under the term serendipity, that most clinical trials today require this serendipity that I happen to go to a doctor who happens to be an investigator in a trial that happens to be right for me. Brad, how do you how do referrals happen today? Do they uh, are they are are referrals a reality for for a, a site like yours today? Are they constrained based on just geography that are closest to you? What does that picture look like? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll definitely you know sort of validate the fact that overwhelmingly, whether or not you're in a clinical trial uh, has a lot to do with whether or not you know a coordinator is in there in your clinic and your doctor's office at the time that you're there. So, you know, that's still, for better or worse, it's very much the case. I mean, uh, we have had some 
luck here and there and creating relationships and, you know, being able to, to get those physician referrals. But again, uh, it still requires somebody to really man that and be constantly sort of running that ship, right? Generally, physicians want, uh, they do want to uh, be involved in a way in which they're uh, referring their patients, but uh, you've got to make it easy for them, just like everything else in clinical research. It's if you say, hey, here's a study, send us your patients, and then you leave, you're very likely to never hear anything ever again. Uh, so it, it really does require uh, a lot of oversight and, and manpower, frankly, uh, from the you know, coordinating site, if the lack of a better word. So Scott, what are you thinking is a solution here? What's a clever, uh, you've got, it sounds like some clever uh, ideas you're bringing to life in terms of ways to use some of these decentralized tools, but not to run a trial that is decentralized, but to create new ways for us to engage these treating physicians in, in diverse communities. Uh, sure, I'd, you know, I'd like to ask Brad the question that we ask any clinical trial site that we're working with, and it's, is there a local specialist that should be referring patients to you that isn't? Yeah, I mean, there's likely half a dozen. Absolutely. Right. right, exactly. And so therein lies the problem. So when we know that patients want to participate in research, it's, it's an overwhelming number of like 70% of patients would participate if it was recommended by their doctor. But it's something like 9% are typically asked. So there's a big disconnect that's happening between engaging these physicians and the patients wanting to find out about clinical trials through their physicians. But Craig and I have talked about this in the past, that there's a misalignment of the incentives between the treating physicians who want to be the advocate of their patients and, and strongly believe that they are the best person to help care for that patient. And then these investigator teams that are, that are looking to advance medicine, right? But these in incentives are, are kind of misaligned. So the sites kind of look at it and say, well, this is good for your patients, send me your patients. And the physicians are looking at it going, well, I don't know what that experience is going to be like. I don't, I genuinely believe that I am the best person for this job. So how can I maintain control of that job while giving you access to this patient? And I think, I think the solution lies there. So maybe I can double click on something. Um, remember, I mentioned that we tried BYOP and were successful in a couple of cases. And I'd like to hear from both of you, how might we include that physician, the treating physician, as a non-investigator so the patient doesn't leave the site? And what are the like, what are the operational processes that we could use to make that a reality? Well, so the FDA, um, based off of source data, has, has already established that they don't recognize a difference between a patient who is at a clinical trial site physically versus a patient who is at a clinical trial site virtually. So if we use that information to our advantage, instead of bringing the study to the patient, why wouldn't we bring the patient to the clinical trial site virtually? Because then according to the FDA, the patient is still at the clinical trial site. So I think the solution lies in allowing these treating physicians to maintain control of their patients. So rather than 
bringing your own doctor to the study, maybe instead you participate in the study through your treating physician. And so there's a way that, that these treating physicians can essentially host clinical trial appointments via telemedicine, right, without becoming an investigator and without triggering a new clinical trial site. And so I agree with all that. Makes perfect sense to me, body and entirely. What about for those assessments, and let's face it, there are a bunch of them that are not really part of standard clinical practice, but are pretty common in trials. Then, then what do we do? Sure. Um, so rather than thinking about studies per protocol, what if we thought about them by appointment? So rather than trying to bridge a you know, large geographic gap, what about, what if we start thinking about what about the physician across the parking lot? So if there is an appointment within a protocol that creates challenging logistics or, you know, something that is just uncomfortable, um, well, let's just hold that appointment at the physical clinical trial site across the parking lot. And then the other appointments that are possible to do from the treating physician's office, let's do them from the treating physician's office so that physician feels included. And, you know, something interesting will happen is these treating physicians, you know, there'll be a little bit of forced adoption and they'll, they'll talk to their patient, how's it going? And if things are going well, well, that treating physician all of a sudden will go, you know what? I've got four or five other patients that might qualify for this. Further, if we walk that further down the line, this is a, a huge help with creating an early relationship with a future prescriber for pharma. And pharma spends a lot of money doing that, right? And so that's something that we don't even think about in the clinop space because you know we're, we're just trying to get to market. But once it gets to market, then you still have to market the medication and get physicians to prescribe it. But if the more physicians that we have kind of adjacent to the study, the faster we get them to prescribe and see the, those results. And so I think there's a lot of interesting components. Craig, any thoughts? There we go. Finding my unmute button. I, 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 um, I, I remember back to when we did that first remote trial at Pfizer and I was stopped in the hallway by the, uh, head of commercial development at the time. And his, his view at the time was, you know, we, we typically only engage physicians to either be an investigator or send their patients to an investigator. And for the overwhelming majority of physicians, neither of those are very appealing options. Being an investigator in a research study is hard. It's a lot of work. It's a commitment and it's not right for every physician. And simply referring your patients away to investigators is, is also counterintuitive in a, especially in the United States where physicians are, are paid based on RVUs and paid based on performance and productivity and sending your patients away to a health system has a, has a, a name, they call it leakage, right? Which sounds nasty, but that's the, the, the mindset of most health systems when it comes to sending patients 
a way for certain things to happen. And so this concept of using decentralized tools in a way that let patients participate in a location that's known, that's trusted, that's familiar, where they're already going for care, where they're already discussing about treatment options with their provider, I, I think is, is very timely. It's something that prior to the pandemic, prior to the use of telemedicine in research, it would have been really hard to see how we bring that to life. I think, it, I think we've got now different tools in the toolkit that we can bring out to physicians in the community. Some of them might want to be an investigator. And I think, you know, some of the models, Jane, that you were describing about activating physicians in smart contemporary ways to be an investigator where it makes sense for their practice, that's awesome. And then some of them shouldn't be an investigator or don't want to be, but we still want their patients to have access. And I think that's where this idea of using telemedicine to let that visit take place, be hosted in the treating community doctor setting, I think is very interesting. Brad, what, what are your thoughts from a, an investigator perspective around feeling confident around oversight and just knowing that if you're using an approach like this, that you can still get done what you need to get done as an investigator or as a site. Yeah, I mean, frankly, solutions like MedVector, uh, if anything, I think are helping maintain that oversight. And, you know, to sort of in a sideways way address Joe's question uh, in the chat there, I mean, you know, we work with studies that have um, home health nurses or um, you know, other sort of DCT type methods like that. And in, in those cases, I have I know nothing about the person that's going to see our patient. Uh, we may never have any interaction with them in any way. Obviously, as you can imagine, that would make a, a PI, you know, a little bit apprehensive uh, about uh, wanting to lean in and use those options. And um, if anything, you know, use of telemedicine and from a treating physician office really does away with that because they're, they're there, they're involved in that whole visit, uh, as well as their, you know, currently delegated research staff. So for me, these, you know, look, there's no, it's no secret. I've been, uh, critical of, you know, some of the, the DCT talk early on. Um, and I think a lot of that was just because of the concern of things getting away from, uh, PI oversight and delegated staff oversight, uh, but you know, these this an option like like MedVector does put the power sort of in the PI's hands, right? You still maintain the oversight, but you still get the um, the benefits that come along with you know obviously not having to drag a patient physically into your research site. So um, you know again, I'm I think for me this is the most intuitive step towards. Uh, you know, real practical decentralization and still sort of give some power to the sites. You know, Brad, I, I think your, your observation actually aligns very much with, um, at least in Europe, the recommendations that the EMA put out about decentralized trials. And I expect to see a lot of the same message come out when the FDA's draft guidance on decentralized trials comes out later this year. A lot of that theme from the EMA leans into investigator oversight. 
and do sponsors and teams have plans in place to make sure the investigator has all the control and over uh, access to data, access to other resources that may be being deployed in the study, like visiting nurses from a third party? What is the plan to demonstrate that the investigator has full control? and oversight to be able to fulfill their obligations and commitments. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you lean into that. I know you've been calling that out for some time. I think the regulators are listening, and I think this is going to be a great tipping point to make sure that those developing innovative solutions are leaned in to making sure sites have the tools they need. Um, Can I go one layer deeper on this, please? Because I think... I love the model. And I'm going to repeat a question that came up to me uh, 18 months ago from a sponsor. So where does the treating physician go on the 1572? Or does that person's name go elsewhere? Scott, do you want to take that one? Uh, I'm I'm happy to jump all over that one. Um, but you know, it might be better for for Brad to you know collaborate as having the experience in, in working with the 1572. Um, you know, there are several elements in in home health where we don't have to add things to the 1572, and I think that we've gotten um, you know pretty. 1572 happy for for lack of a better word, and thinking that everybody needs to be on it. Um, but you know there there's instances you know for example when you do a visit at a, a patient's house right you you don't list the address at, onto the 1572. Um, there are other situations where you know a a tech you wouldn't have to add to the 1572 because it's not um, relevant to the study itself. And so from from there so my answer to that would be in our model we try to eliminate the need for the 1572 however some sponsors will want to add it some some uh, individual sites will want to add all of these the you know individuals to it and i say okay so does it need to be there from an fda guidance perspective i don't believe so but at the same time you can cover your ass as much as you want <laughs> and and we're okay with that and we'll support it. Yeah, I guess I would sort of echo that. I'd say it probably, it depends. And I think in a lot of instances, you know, the treating physician may not need inclusion on the 1572. I know that may be a heresy if any, uh, you know, CRAs or anyone out there listening, but, um, you know, ultimately data is still being collected by the delegated staff uh, at the, research site uh, so i think uh, again there may be exceptions to that depending on the the protocol you certainly can't you know overgeneralize too much but uh, I, I could see a world where again they may not may not need to fit into that equation so first i totally agree and i think about the brick and mortar setting where i wouldn't put the room number where a phlebotomy draw was being done so <laughs> well yeah, well, you're right. You're you're not wrong. Exactly. The problem is we've seen people with that level uh, of sort of granularity. Uh, and look, you know, don't, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go on a rant here as much as I love to do so. Uh, but you know, you're right. Those are the kinds of things I think we need to start getting away from, and uh, you know, get away from that 
that level of ridiculous specificity because I, I have seen that. I have too. And so because we are pretty, um, how do I say, we like to make sure our documentation is complete. Would you then have that person on the delegation of authority log? And I realize I'm going way deep and then we'll come back out of the rabbit hole, but I think it's important to get your perspective so we can potentially yeah, think, reach some closure. No, I think it's awesome to, to go deep on this because, you know, none of this matters if we can't get practical and, and be able to operationalize it. And again, I think it's probably going to depend on uh, the visit or the protocol or the specifics. But frankly, if a treating physician, uh, they're not collecting any data, they're essentially referring the patient. You don't put any referral uh you know, every referring physician on a DOA, uh, healthcare providers can talk about clinical trials to patients uh, without being uh, uh, on a DOA anywhere. So again, I, I don't know that that necessarily has to enter the equation. Now, if there's more level of complexity there, that's certainly a question mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself and, and account for appropriately. I guess I thought about it a little bit differently, more than the referral. And I agree with you, Brad, but um, let's say say it was a rheumatology trial and somebody was going to do a joint count assessment, I would think the treating rheumatologist would be able to do that and maybe even record the data, but then it changes where the documentation needs to go in terms of who's making an assessment. The oversight would be with the PI. So, uh, Jane, let me, let me jump in here. So you, you touched on a really important part uh, that, that, that we've kind of built our model around, and it's all about source data, right? So when you're referring to an assessment that's being done and data being collected at an alternative location, you've now created a virtual site or a subsite or a sub-I by collecting that data at that alternate location. So there's an interesting thing that happened with telemedicine. Before telemedicine, where data was collected and where it was recorded, they were, they were married, right? They were attached at the hip. But because of telemedicine, we're, for the first time, we're able to actually separate that to where the patient can be in one location and the data can be recorded in an entirely different location simultaneously. So one way of looking at this is we now have the ability to have the patient in two different places at the same time which is interesting when you think about that. So let's think about a uh, rheumatologist in the room at the clinical trial site doing the assessment, and then the, uh, the PI is entering in the computer in the same room with a piece of plexiglass in between the two of them, right? So the patient is at the site, so the, the data has not changed. Now, this isn't going to be a blanket fit for everything. Everything is going to have its, its own um, uh, logistics behind it, but this is just kind of a, a way of thinking about it. Um, another way of thinking about it would be because we have this separation, and and so either the patient is at two places at the same time, or the patient is being brought to the clinical trial site virtually. Instead of bringing the study to the patient, we're bringing the patient to the clinical trial site. So the way that you can now kind of think about this in your brain is you can take a bus to the clinical trial site, you could take an Uber to a clinical trial site, or you can take telemedicine to the clinical trial site. All of these are potentially different vehicles that we could use 
that are compliant with the FDA guidance. And it, Craig, if, if it's if it's all right, I'd like to uh, jump on something that um, I'd like to talk about defensibility. And so let's it, do that in just one quick okay. second, Scott, because you know the rules. You know what time it is. We're we're oh. halfway into the hour. Um, so that means I've got to just remind folks who may have just joined us here at the bottom of the hour. Welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse. We do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, as well as replicate this content through your favorite podcast platforms. Here on uh, TGIF DCT, we talk about all things decentralized trials. The topics come from you, the members of this community. If you have a topic you'd love to see us cover, just drop a note to myself, Jane, Amir Kalali. We'll make sure to get you added to the schedule, just like we did when Vidi Goal reached out and said, let's talk about treating physicians, prescribing clinical trials, and the role of telemedicine and making that happen. And that's why now we're fortunate to have our guests this week, Scott Stout from MedVector, along with Brad Hightower from Hightower Clinical. And as always, I'm joined by Jane Miles, but I am not joined by Amir Kalali, who unfortunately had a conflict this week. We're going to open up the room for your questions, comments, perspectives in a moment. To do that, take advantage of that little hand-raising icon on the bottom of your app. And while you're doing that, Scott, let me bounce back over to you. I think you were going to share some perspective on defensibility. Yeah, uh, thanks, Craig. Uh, so this is a this is a term that I've heard when dealing with the FDA and and regulatory people, but I don't hear it from the site level or sponsor level, which I find very interesting. And it's the concept of being defensible. So the FDA releases guidance, right? They don't, they're not really like approving strategy. You can't get something pre-approved. That's not how the FDA works. The FDA, it's, you know, it's all about, they want to give guidance so we can prove to them about efficacy and patient safety of a new medication. That's the whole goal. So when you're at the site level and you're trying something new, it's important that what you're trying is defensible. And the FDA will tell you this. They'll say it needs to be defensible. They're open to new ideas and new opportunities as long as it's defensible. And and that doesn't mean it sounded like a good idea. It means point to the where in the guidance you believe that this is accurate and the safety per, uh, uh, protocols behind it. Show me your SOPs. Show me how this is defensible. And so if we start thinking about operating protocols that are defensible, it really opens a lot of doors because when a site monitor comes in, as long as you're defensible, as long as the strategy that you're using is defensible, that site monitor is likely to go, interesting, okay. And Brad, I think that you've got some experience with that. <laughs> yeah, I can promise you that most sites are experts in you know, defending, uh, you know, some of the things that they do, because we do look, we spend our time getting beat up, uh, by monitors over sort of every little thing. I get it. That's their job. Uh, but as a result, we get pretty good at, uh, you know, thinking these things through, being able to refer back to guidance and, uh, being able to really justify, uh, you know, why we're able to do some of the things that we do. So I think that's, that's a pretty, 
uh, well-developed strength in a lot of sites toolboxes already. Um, now, you know, some of these things are, you know, a little, maybe a little outside the box in terms of thinking for a lot of sites, but uh, I think the same, you know, basic ideas apply again, can we go back to guidance and, and, uh, Know, justify uh, our processes and in this case uh, overwhelmingly I think the answer is, is yes. Brad I wish you knew how many calls I had fielded from CRAs who have been at sites trying to make sense of is this okay <laughs> um, and you're right they really are trying to do their job and they're armed with their best tools but I don't know that they always feel they have the decision-making authority to support your defensibility. Yeah, I mean, they often don't um, in, in my experience, but I, I will find that as long as you can craft a good defense, I mean, most of the time the site will, you know, quote unquote win, not that it's a contest, but um, again, I think as long as you can make that reasonable justification uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, sites are allowed to do that. Obviously, there's exceptions to that, but yeah, just want to call out a couple of quick updates for folks regarding 1572s. Obviously, that is a uh, a topic that's come up already in this conversation. It's worth noting that within DTRA, there is a a collab that's being kicked off to help teams to look at, better understand, demystify some of the concerns around 1572 use. But we also have some work today that's happening along with ASCO and the FDA, looking specifically at 1572s and where there is confusion that needs to be clarified. Um, certainly, these concerns around the 1572 are particularly prominent in oncology. Patients may go to lots of different places for medical imaging or or a lab work to take place. And so, especially in the era of COVID, where we were trying to be even more flexible in those locations, it became particularly challenging for the 1572 to keep pace. So it'll be very interesting to see what kind of momentum uh, around clarification is able to come out through those different collaborations. I'm seeing some great perspective in the chat, and I want to go over to those in just a moment. But let's check out, check in first with Doug Bain. Doug, it's great to see you here. Introduce yourself if anyone has not yet had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's uh, on today's topic. Doug, do we have you there? We may be struggling a bit. I know, uh, Jane, you mentioned there were some server issues out there in Clubhouse land. So, Doug, I'm, oh, there we go, Doug. Yeah, I, I, I'm in mistake in taking Brad's advice and downloading this thing to my Mac. Um, but anyway, I figured out the tech. Um, so is the lesson there not to follow Brad's advice on tech? Well, maybe maybe not the first time around when you're trying to speak and then can't figure out which button to press. But anyway, I've got there in the end. So. See, and there it all works out. Excellent. What's going on, Doug? So, so yeah, introduction. So for those that don't know me, I'm Doug Bain. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at a mid-sized CRO. Um, so I was very yeah interested in this discussion. Always interested in listening to you guys, especially with Brad and Scott on. Um, so I was just thinking from a tech perspective, how could we make this work? How could we get the second tier of physicians in this case, rather than a PI, uh, the treating physician, 
Um, and so, I, you know, I think with, and I, I don't want to use DCT specifically because I, I don't think it's, uh, it's it's strictly DCT, but um, I have run a, a couple of clinical trials for GPs um, and that was effectively simply having a virtual PI and you would have the GPs, the treating physicians, um, actually acting as the functions as if they were a PI, but um, <clears throat> in a slightly revised role. Um, but I think with the technologies today, you know, it is possible to extend these apps that allow you to capture data from patients, but also caregivers, but also treating physicians. Um, but simply it's a case of rolling into the workflow, the capabilities of the PI to say, I'd like to delegate that data capture responsibility to the treating physician. And obviously with that, you've got some form of contract, virtual contract or something similar in place that allows that to happen. Um, I, I don't see from a technical perspective that being impossible. And I, we're seeing this with apps already in the regular healthcare setting where a patient can invite their physician to <clears throat> a, a, a sort of webinar, a virtual conference. Uh, you've got that in the UK already. So I think it can be done. The technology is there. I think it's, it's a case of of driving it forward and applying it and come out with methods and standards that allow it to happen, not just in a single study case or a single treating physician case, but start to appear more widely. Well, that's an interesting twist, uh, Doug, as well. Scott, I think uh, Doug is actually bringing up an, an interesting uh, kind of pivot. We've been talking a lot about empowering the physician in the community to bring their patient into a trial. Um, what about this lean on a patient bringing their community physician into a trial? And is that a likely, a, a likely part of the future that you're envisioning? Uh, sure. And, and in fact, we, we encourage it. You know, if, if we're working with a patient recruitment company and they identify a patient that is potentially too far away from a clinical trial site, is it a better option for us to facilitate that appointment from the patient's home? Or is it a better option for us to facilitate that appointment from the treating physician's office? The kind of standard answer that everybody thinks is, well, let's do it from the patient's home because that's more convenient. Well, for me, I think that it's far better for us to do it from the treating physician's office because then we get a little forced adoption and that treating physician gets to continue being part of that conversation. The, the treating physician gets to be part of that shared decision-making, which we know is so important for patients. And further, it potentially unlocks the door to a, a, an additional practice. Now, that's the, the patient recruitment component of that. But... Uh, Doug uh, touched on another uh, point, which, Doug, you're thinking about it perfectly, obviously. I mean, you're, you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but what I would say is I think what we have to do is we have to acknowledge the separation of data collection versus data entry. And so when we're talking about source data, it's not the first person that measured it. It's not the place it was measured, it's the first place it was written down. Whether it was written down on hand on a piece of paper, that would be your source data. Whether it was entered in a computer, that would be your source data. Whether it was entered directly into the EDC, that is becomes the source. So 
Doug, for example, if I was to ask you for your phone number, do I have to send you my phone? Or can you just tell me your phone number? So I can still enter your data into my phone while I'm in California and you're somewhere else. And we can do that via the connection that we have. So it would be no different than the, the PI who's sitting in front of the EDC asking the local nurse during a telemedicine visit, could you please tell me the height and weight of the patient? Now, according to the FDA, when that data is entered for the first time into the EDC or written down at the clinical trial site, that becomes the source. And so that's the, the, the trick that we have to use to our advantage. Um, Scott, are there, or actually, sorry, Doug, did you have another, uh, another build on that? Just response, I mean, you know, we do, Personally, I mean, maybe this is me talking out turn a wee bit, but we do get highly hung up on source data. I mean, I know the rules and I know the rules and regulations, um, but source data, you know, I mean, I would actually ask Brad, you know, is there ever a situation, I mean, Brad, you're not tend to enter, but maybe uh, Dan, uh, who's not on this call, who works uh, with source data capture. You know, is there ever a situation where you scribble a blood pressure down on a piece of paper and then take it over to the computer and then key it into the computer? Are you actually keeping that scribbled piece of paper somewhere or are you just saying, actually, I just entered it straight in? Does that not happen quite often? No. Well, no, I mean, you know, again, we that piece of paper is your source. It should go in your binder. I mean, we still have these big printed packets of paper where we're doing exactly that. Now, I don't think... I don't think that's the way we should be doing things. But if a monitor shows up and they say, they look into your EDC and they see a height and a weight and a blood pressure, they're going to say, okay, well, where did this come from? And they say, well, I just entered it in. Well, you're about to get shit on because they need to see that piece of paper. And of course, I think that's ridiculous. But unfortunately, that's that's still the reality to a, you know, to a very large degree. So let, let, so let me take that slightly further. So let's imagine your EDC system has this capability to flag something as source or not, okay? So you enter that as you know, it's a highlight pen type user interface. You say that this was entered as source. Now, if the monitor says, uh, did you enter this as source? You say, yes, the system says that I entered it as source. Now, I, I think that's actually valid. Now, I know there's different interpretations. I, some people will say, no, 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 you must enter it on paper first. But, you know, that I think with especially trusted third party solutions that aren't under the control of the sponsor, yeah. It can be entered. Kind of, yeah, that might be the key right there is that, you know, not under the control of the sponsor, which, you know, even then, if you're using eSource as a site, you're still transcribing it again into EDC. So, uh, you know, I get what you're saying, and I don't disagree with you at all. And I think if you look at the FDA guidelines, it seems to lay out that that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, but unfortunately, in practice, that's just not what we're seeing. Well, we've got two Ted's and some great questions in the uh, chat as well. Let's uh, let's jump over to our first Ted here, Ted B. Coming off mute, introduce yourself, share your thoughts on today's topic, Ted. Thanks, Craig. Uh, I am Ted Bartison. I'm CEO over at MedVector, and I just wanted to piggyback off a comment that Jane made earlier. I wish that uh, Brad would be in some of the conversations I have in rooms uh, where CRAs are trying to get comfortable with this. And I guess I wanted to point back to uh, what you loaded, Craig, uh, the uh, FDA 
uh, e-source guidance uh, that is out there that really does look at that source data uh, as where that input is happening. But I think to a certain extent in the industry, and this is why I like this conversation in Clubhouse, you know, we try to, we need to get out of our echo chamber. I think we all agree that uh, we want to make clinical trials available so that the physician can uh, say, hey, patient, I want you to do this just like they're um, holding their script pad and they go do something. Uh, But of course, we've got to make sure that we're keeping the patient safe and we have high data integrity and and all those elements. Uh, But the piece that I actually wanted to go in a little bit different direction is really that the an ancillary benefit of this approach is really the stickiness of that participant in the trial as we go forward, uh, especially when we start looking at trying to tackle some of the diversity issues that we have and that trust that that specialist has with their uh, patient is going to help us expand um, participation, not only just in sheer numbers, but in the um, uh, the different uh, areas that we can get uh, participants involved in trials. And I just wanted to throw that out to the, this panel or the group and get some thoughts on that. Uh, so maybe, maybe is there a question around that, Ted, yeah, I direct that to Brad? What, what, uh, Brad, do you think that there's something that's specific around diversity uh, that can uh, be utilized when we're leaning in on these specialist physicians? Well, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot of value in, you know, letting the patient stay with their in their community with their physician rather than, you know, trying to drag drag them out and force them to come to a center with a, you know, doctor or staff that's not like them. So, I mean, to me, that's you know, a no brainer in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that's uh, probably going to show that, uh, you know, we'll see some increased diversity through using those sorts of tools. So um, just a real quick example where this model, and it was actually the patient bringing their physician along, Ted and Scott, as opposed to the doctor bringing the patient along that did work with both stickiness and diversity in in some of those settings where we tried it out but i think it's really interesting i do think that these more um, complicated interventional trials is where you'll see the stickiness and we'll also have to think about the workflow 100 percent, jane couldn't agree more and you know every every that's why i think that if we start thinking about this per appointment rather than per protocol, it becomes a lot more digestible um, because there are appointments that are just inherently difficult. Um, and so if if we stop thinking that we've exhausted the footprint of a clinical trial site and that we need to go create another footprint somewhere else because we just don't have any more uh, candidates for the clinical studies, I think we need to stop thinking like that because obviously pharma is building a medicine for a demand that they know exists in a market. So we have enough patients in, in all of these existing markets. And so it's, it's really, you know, finding those opportunities to get in front of the right patients and, and incentivate, incentivize those, those treating physicians to want to refer their patients as part of their care. 
I think you just set up another topic, Craig, for another day, because I really want to dive in more deeply on how do we help the treating physicians talk about clinical research to these patients and get them comfortable first with the overall concept and then with why the study may be useful. But we don't have time for that today. So maybe we'll just park that for another day. Sounds like a good parking lot item. And um, why don't we bounce over to our next Ted, Ted Trafford. Come on off mute, introduce yourself if anyone has not had the pleasure. Share your thoughts on today's topic. Yeah, hi everyone, uh, Ted Trafford. I'm the Director of Business Development for Probity Medical Research. Um, Probity is uh, a large uh, network of about 60 sites across five countries. Um, the question that I have uh, for Brad and, and Scott is, you know, as I've been assessing various DCT elements in tech and how they can be integrated at the site level, um, what I've been learning is that not one size fits all when it comes to different therapeutic areas. So, you know, there's approaches that may work really well for one therapeutic area or indication and not for others. Um, in dermatology, for example, there are assessments that are done at pretty much every visit that can't be done virtually. So when you're assessing the thickness of a, of a, a lesion, for example. Um, and so, yeah, what I'd like to hear from is what are the therapeutic areas that you're using this for where it works particularly well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, a great point. And I think Scott's kind of, you know, hammered on that. Like, you really got to look visit by visit, you know, and, and sometimes protocol by protocol. We've, we've actually used it in a, in a migraine trial, um, where, you know, aside from a, you know, blood draw physical exam, there's not much going on that's not done sort of more conversationally or through, uh, you know, EPRO. Um, so that's really been our first sort of, uh, delving in. I mean, I think there's, you know, a triglyceride study where I think it would probably fit in very well, uh, as well, but to your point, yeah, I mean, there's certainly places where it's, it's really not going to fit or, you know, I, I think it could still be great used, great, greatly utilized as sort of a pre-screen, uh, you know, early conversation tool, even if you're not able to really do those visits. I mean, if you can still talk to patients in 10 different clinics that you're not physically in, I mean, there's a whole lot of value in that, uh, in my mind. Uh, Ted, I know that you and I have chatted about this, um, before, um, when, when we, when we get hung up on the concept that clinical trials are hard, they're really difficult to design. But the point of a clinical trial is to bring everything down to standardized data so it can be comparable across the board. So there are 100%, you're right, there are examples where it is a, a, a difficult appointment to do remotely. Um, a great example of this would be uh, an infusion, right? And let's say it's, a, it's an IP that, that is challenging to transport. Um, and so th that would be an example of an appointment that is inherently difficult and one that, you know, hopefully we could do that appointment at the site and then do the remaining appointments uh, at the, um, the treating physician office. But when we're talking about, you know, a dermatology study where we're, where we're measuring the, the, a, a rash, I understand where everyone's head goes and, well, you have to physically touch the patient. Uh, and and that, that is true. Now, 
the interesting thing about telemedicine and this, the way that source data can, can be uh, used with telemedicine is information can be visually verified, right? So it, it could be as simple, and, and I'm not trying to say that the test that, that you were suggesting is this simple, but it can be as simple as holding a ruler up and rulers are standardized, that's the whole point, right? Holding a ruler up next to the rash and then holding it in front of the camera to where the investigator team is now looking at that measurement the exact same way. And they can say, you know, the, the last time that I, that I recorded this, we did it from a different spot. Could you please move the ruler, you know, three millimeters to the left? Um, and, and so there are ways of still conducting the study. So it really isn't, um, therapeutic specific, it's really appointment specific, and it's important that we, we start thinking about these protocols per appointment. Yeah, I appreciate the the point that, that you're making, Scott. Um, yeah, the, the example I gave of the dermatology lesion thickness is, is uh, I think you'd have to understand the nuances of some of the assessments, but I, I do get your point and I appreciate it. I, I just love to hear what some of the really successful um, studies have been. I think that's that's helpful to put it in context. Uh, so I, I was just going to say, you know, we have run into very few protocols that were not a fit. Um, and, and so, you know, as far as giving examples of, of who we're working with, you know, that, that can be, uh, somewhat sensitive. Um, but it, it really is, you know, I'm, <laughs> uh, and, and I understand what you're saying that, that some studies just aren't a fit, but it's because it's rather than some studies aren't a fit, it's some appointments aren't a fit. And so if, if that measurement truly is complex and something that a dermatologist couldn't do. Um, now, let's remember that if this is a GP that we're working with and not a dermatologist, then yes, then they are not qualified to do that measurement. But if this is like to like and, and it's a dermatologist that's doing it, it's comfortable doing it, if it's still an example of something that, that, that the PI wouldn't be comfortable with a, with a dermatologist making this measurement while the PI was observing it, then that appointment wouldn't be a fit. The question becomes is what other appointments in that protocol potentially would be a fit. So if that's something that has to happen every appointment, well then that protocol is likely not a fit. Does that help? And just to just attack on Ted, I think, you know, there's optionality here too, because if you needed, so it doesn't preclude someone from being a sub eye on the other end uh, who can do a POSI score or a VSA or whatever you might be referring to. I mean, I think those things, that's option still exists uh, where, you know, you'd have someone on the other side who, who might be on a DOA, uh, even though it may not be preferable for all trials. But for the instance like that, I don't think it's it necessarily precludes that. Hey, we are coming up at the uh, at the top of our hour together. I'd like to thank Scott and Brad for uh, sharing their perspectives today. Vidi, thank you for being out there and suggesting this week's topic. Um, Doug, Ted, and Ted, thanks for jumping on stage. Hey, Brad, you've got a podcast. How can people find out more about what else is on your mind? 
I appreciate the opportunity to shamelessly self-promote. Uh, you can check out notetofilepodcast.com. Uh, we're also doing weekly live streams, and uh, but you can get all the info there. Thanks, thanks, Craig. Any anything exciting coming up on Note to File? Any uh, sneak preview you've got for this audience? Uh, there's a few people I think in the crowd coming on. Dirk uh, with Caster is going to come on here in a few weeks. Um, I've got conversations with Daniel Fox, uh, Craig. I don't you don't know why you won't come on. I mean, you you feel like you're ducking me, man. Brad, I sit by my inbox every day, staring, <laughs> waiting, waiting for that invitation. <laughs> Maybe, maybe today is the day. Um, and hey, I'm just glad we've got Dirk on the East Coast so we can get him on all of these shows. He's always got great, <laughs> great perspective to get on here. Hey, thanks everybody for joining. Have a great weekend. Stay well. We will be back together next Friday. All the best.